The scripture this morning is Psalm 12. Hear the word of the Lord. Help, Lord, for no one is faithful anymore. Those who are loyal have vanished from the human race. Everyone lies to their neighbor. They flatter with their lips, but harbor deception in their hearts. May the Lord silence all flattering lips and every boastful tongue. Those who say, by our own tongues we will prevail. Our own lips will defend us. Who is Lord over us? Because the poor are plundered and the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will protect them from those who malign them. And the words of the Lord are flawless, like silver purified in a crucible, like gold refined seven times. You, Lord, will keep the needy safe and will protect us forever from the wicked, who freely strut about when what is vile is honored by the human race. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, welcome once again. My name is Soon Pak, one of the pastors here, and it is great to, great to rest and to worship, uh, whether you're here in our service or joining us online, that we can all go to our Lord in worship. What a blessing. Today, we close out our summer series through the first 12 chapters of Psalms, and I encourage you, if you've missed some, as though you were traveling through the summer or uh, couldn't make it, to go to stonebridge.org, and you can find all our sermons on there from this previous series, as well as series before that. A uh, great way for you to catch up and to kind of uh, get into the rhythm of what this psalm series was about. See, the vision is that we could come to the Lord through the psalms in an honest way. We can honestly come to God. That we didn't have to wait for our lives to be perfect. We didn't have to wait for our prayers to be polished. Uh, but we can come to the Lord and our true selves uh, that are honest versions of ourselves to God as much as the psalmist did as they were in the midst of loneliness and betrayal and frustration and even heartache. The beauty of the psalms are that it echoes the most vulnerable parts of our hearts, uh, that in those moments that, it's, uh, that we don't just let them be, but we let them, the psalms reorder our affections back towards God, that they become intimate with our lives and to begin to reshape the way we think about our prayers, the way we live our lives. Uh, and in, especially in the midst of an uncertain world, the Psalms uh, reorder our affections uh, to the holy, to the divine, to our great God. The reformer Martin Luther shared about the excellencies of the Psalms as though all of Scripture, if you could get all of Scripture and it could be compiled into uh, just one book, you would find it in the Psalms, capturing all of the scriptures. He would also say that the human heart is like a ship on a stormy sea driven out by winds blowing them from all corners of heaven. The book of Psalms is full of heartfelt utterances made during the storms of this kind. Where can, find one, where can one find nobler words to express joy in the Psalms of praise or gratitude? In them you can see into the hearts of the saints as if you were looking at a lovely pleasure garden or gazing into heaven. The Psalms ground us into a deeper reality where our affections can find rest, can discover grace, and once again chart into those unknown waters that the Lord is calling us towards. And that's what Psalm 12 is about as well. As much as the previous 11 Psalms and all of them is that they want to reshape us, reorder us in a way that is matching the rhythms that God has for us. And as we look at Psalm 12, it is just that. In the midst of the uncertainty and chaos, how can we reorder our lives to be fixed upon God in an honest and vulnerable way? 
I've been in North Carolina just a little over a month now, and when you move into a new place, there are things you have to do, uh, things that you have to reorder, like uh, you have to change the addresses on all your credit cards and all the bills that you have. And one of the things I think we all, um, the least thing that we look forward to is uh, changing our driver's license, which means you have to go to the DMV, (coughs) which I did a couple weeks ago. Uh, you would think even with appointment, it would just be a, a short appointment. I was there a little over four hours. Um, yeah, that was my Friday. Uh, yet, it was, uh, we got the job done. So I got a North Carolina license, which is hurrah. But when I was there, uh, you know, you wait in one line, and you go to another line, you go to another line, and they don't care who you are. You're just a number to them. You could be up here or down here. The DMV has a way of neutralizing all of that. So here I am waiting in line, uh, probably hour two. Uh, as we're waiting there, uh, another person comes in, and they kind of skip the line and go straight to the counter. I think they thought what they had was a lot more important than what we were all waiting for, uh, and they rushed to the front of the line. Now, I say that saying, I didn't really know the person in front of me or the person behind me, but uh, we were unified in our hatred of <laughs> this person. You could sense it. We didn't even say any words. You could just, by the looks you gave and the... Uh, and unfortunately, the, the person at the counter actually served the person and moved along, which we were all very, very upset about. Now imagine you're in a line at the DMV. Imagine every person that comes in, they skip you and go straight to the front of the line, and that you're the only person that's properly waiting in line, yet everyone that comes in is cutting you and getting to the front. Now how would that make you feel? as you were waiting there, how would that make you feel that everyone keeps cutting you? I think that's a glimpse into what David is feeling. Uh, King David, the author of Psalm 12, is feeling, and he puts it this way. He says, he appeals to the Lord, help, Lord. He said, for no one is faithful anymore. Those who are loyal have vanished from the human race. Everyone lies to their neighbor. They flatter their lips but harbor deception in their hearts. Can you hear David's exhaustion, frustration, and anger? And he turns to the Lord and expresses the depths of his angst. And hyperbolic as it may be, he goes and says, no one is faithful. Everyone lies to their neighbor. I think we said we've all been there, right? Where we feel like we're the only one faithfully following the Lord. Where we feel like we're the only one standing in the right place. Yet everyone, it feels like, is cutting us. So David is most likely writing this when he feels all alone, when he's being pursued by an enemy, most likely someone he called a friend now is pursuing him, trying to kill him and take his life. And what that personal experience with David, the David is experiencing this personal experience has now reshaped the way he looks at the world, has reshaped the way the world interacts with him. Everyone he sees is unfaithful. Everyone is vile. Everyone lies to their neighbor, those who show no loyalty, and and even when they do to your face, they're actually saying something else behind your back. Do you hear the frustration in David's words? But the beauty is even in the frustration. Look where he turns. He appeals to God. Help, Lord. Vulnerable, unpolished honesty to God. For some of us, that's what you can just leave with today. No matter where you're at, Go to the Lord. Allow him to reorder your affection. Allow him to reorder the perspective you have. Just go to the Lord. 
The rest of the Psalms is breaking down what David's feeling in that moment, the reality of the situation, and how he begins to reshape in light of God. And we're going to go through this guidance through three aspects through Psalm 12. First is the confession of the unrighteous, the confession of the unrighteous. Two, the righteous response, the righteous response. And third, the perseverance of the righteous, the perseverance of the righteous. Confession of the unrighteous, the righteous response, and the perseverance of the righteous. First, the confession of the unrighteous, verse three and four. May the Lord silence all flattering lips and every boastful tongue. Those who say by our tongues we will prevail, our own lips will defend us. Who is Lord over us? Who is Lord over us? David prays to the Lord to silence or cut off those who speak with flattering lips and a boastful tongue. But David exposes that it's not just about someone who's immature or ignorant and just can't help brag or gossip. We've all been there, you know, bragging about a toy when you were a child or maybe a, a new car when you're older. We've all been there when we're a little immature and we just want to show off what we have. But that's not what David's talking about. He's actually assessing something much deeper. We get that from that last question. He's assessing about lordship. Who has authority? Who are these people that said, who is Lord over us? The question that he exposes is that question of authority. And one commentator, commentator actually breaks the Hebrew down and says it's more of an affirmation. It's not a question waiting for a response. It's an affirmation after this idea that I can do whatever I want and say, and I can defend myself and, and reconcile myself. He says, and the, who is Lord over us actually breaks down more into no one can tell us what to do. Who can tell us what to do? No one can. We don't have to obey anyone. That's the spirit of these verses. This is the confession of the unrighteous. They become the hero of their own story. See, they always have the words to reshape their stories into one affirming themselves, affirming their perspective, affirming their beliefs, rather than confronting the reality of the world or the failures they encounter. We all know this confession, right? It's a universal confession. It's the confession of self-sufficiency. It's the reliance on self that we don't let any other authority speak into our lives. Who are you to speak into my life? The confession of self-sufficiency. I can do it myself. Pastor and author Josh Weidman uh, in his book, End of Anxiety, talks about it this way. He says, self-sufficiency is the idol of choice today. I don't have a choice today. There's a baseline cultural narrative that says leaning on yourself and making something of yourself is the only way to live. We make plans and we make those plans happen. Culture seems to tell us if we're weak, if we rely on anyone else. The confession of self-sufficiency. This is not just an assessment of culture or society, but if we take it deeper, it's a reflection of our own hearts. There's something in us that believes at some level that we can do it ourselves. And even more powerful, we should do it by our own selves. Pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps mentality. And the more we feed into it, eventually we become, we start to believe that narrative. Well, who is Lord over us? No one can really tell me what to do. I can do it myself. I've shared many times that I have four children uh, and I love all of them. Uh, but I would honestly say, as a parent, and I think most of you agree, if you're a parent or grandparent or no kids, there are certain phases of a child's life you like more than others, right? 
uh, which means there are certain phases you don't like as much. And I would say even hate <laughs> on the bad days. Uh, I am not a particular fan of that 12 to 18 month old phase, that, that phase where they're starting to learn how to do things, especially walking. Uh, I don't know if it's just my kids, but when they started walking, it wasn't like, oh, they started running. They're just like wobbly all the time. And when they're wobbly, they fall all the time. And I would try to go and hold their hands, like even going down the stairs or even a rocking uh, terrain, I'd try to reach out and hold their hands, and they were insistent that they could do it themselves, uh, that they wanted to be independent and run on their own. And because they're so wobbly, they would always fall down. And, you know, I can't just go up to them and say, hey, I told you so, and laugh at them while they're crying. <laughs> that would make me a bad parent, right? Uh, no, we don't do that. And, you know, when we talk about independence in a child's development, that's a good thing. You want them to have a little more self-sufficiency, that they can do it themselves. But when we talk about you and I, and we talk about it in a spiritual sense, independence leads to that self-sufficiency. And the truth is, when we feed into that, that somehow we have to fix it ourselves. We have to do it ourselves. Somehow I have to make myself okay before I can go out there. It always leads us to being, us being fallen and broken and defeated. See, the Apostle Paul breaks it down in the New Testament, and he talks about the works of the law, this works righteousness that somehow you could earn your way into becoming right with God, the idea that I could be self-sufficient enough, even with holy intentions. Well, if I just go to enough Bible studies, if I keep going to church, if I keep doing this stuff, then somehow I'll be okay with God. That would earn the standing before God. But he says this in Galatians, a letter to the Galatian churches. He says, for all who rely on the works of the law are what? Are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not uh, obey or everything, continue, does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. See, the, that self-sufficiency actually becomes what Paul says, a curse for us, this reliance on self. Where does that leave us? Where does that leave us, church? See, the confession of the unrighteous is actually the confession of our own hearts, whether we believe or even when we do believe, we still feel it in our hearts that we are drawn to justify ourselves with our own tongue, boasting in our ability to defend and confidence that we can convince. And no matter how hard we try to try, we can't rescue ourselves. We constantly keep falling down into this battle against the darkness and oppression and separation. And the question of then who can rescue us is intimately tied to that final question, who is Lord over us? Who is Lord over us? When we shift our answers from a position of arrogant pride to one of desperate submission, the Lord actually does respond as he does in verse 5 and 6. The righteous response, the righteous response. 5 and 6. Because the poor are plundered and the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will protect them from those who malign them. And the words of the Lord are flawless, like silver purified in a crucible, like gold refined in, refined seven times. I will now arise. I know it's a heavy time in our lives, but there's some patterns in our year and season uh, that bring joy. And uh, I can say that this weekend is a good weekend because college football is back. And some of you are excited, some of you are like, 
not judging me because of it. Uh, but it's fun. You know, it's a good rhythm of our, our, our lives for me as well. Uh, my wife and I both went to the University of Florida, uh, a great university. We're big Gator fans. Uh, they won la- last night, which is a win, but I know Georgia won too, so that's disappointing for me. That's pointed at Pastor Kevin. But when we were at the University of Florida, we would say things uh, like, you know, God must be a gator because the sun is orange and the sky is blue, right? And you're like, what? Well, let me convince you. So look at that. Isn't that beautiful? No, it's silly to think that somehow God has sides, right? When we talk about college football, something so trivial, it's ridiculous that God would pick sides in anything like that. You wouldn't believe it when you think of the prayers lifted up right before a football game. But, but the reality is God does take sides. It's evident throughout Scripture. See, God does take sides. The God of, our, the God of all things, our God, does take sides, and he's always on the side of the oppressed, the marginalized, the forgotten, and the poor and needy. God does take sight. 33 times throughout the Psalms, he mentions the poor and needy as the forefront of God's intervention and his thoughts. He remembers, he does not ignore, and he hears and he responds. For all who are poor and needy, the Lord says, I will now arise. So often we're faced with overwhelming hardship, injustice, or oppression that our hearts naturally turn to rescue from the situation. See, when we encounter that cancer diagnosis we weren't expecting, when we encounter the job loss that you didn't see coming, a financial hardship or an exam that you failed or you didn't get into the right school, we know what that feels like. We offer these quick fix prayers. Lord, rescue me from this, change this situation. And we always want to be taken out and we want resolution to happen so we can just get back to normal. But the reality is, Lord, the Lord wants to enter in with you. He's not just wanting to take you out of something, but he wants to enter in with you. And what he offers is not a quick escape plan, but something much more valuable, way more long-lasting, and it's his very words. The words of God himself. Our words are fleeing, fleeting, full of flatter and boast, but his words are flawless, purified, and refined. Psalm 19, a little bit later, talks about God's words in all its, in all its array of diversity. It talks about it being the law and his, and his commandments. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. And those powerful words that the Lord gives us. In a time where we aren't sure where anything we receive is true anymore, or rather accurate, or even purposely misleading, God's words stand alone, free of error, falsehood, and deceit. The word of the Lord is not just a blueprint for your life. It is God himself entering in into the muck and mire of your life to bring the ultimate reordering. His words are not just mere written words as a guide for you, but they are the living words to give you life and life to the full, invading your life to speak into you 
in the New Testament, the Apostle John says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he expounds further in verse 14. He says, the Word became flesh. Those words that we keep talking about in the Old Testament, it became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. This is Jesus. Jesus himself who came, the word in flesh, to be purified in the crucible and refined in perfection so that you and I could have redemption in him and him alone. He enters in with us. He comes in with us. And he sits with us. And in him and him only do we have this perseverance of the righteous. Those who follow him, those who know his word, there's this perseverance of the righteous. The same thing we hear in Psalm 1. He gives to us, verse 7 and 8, you, Lord, will keep the needy safe. You, Lord, will keep the needy safe and will protect us forever from the wicked. But he describes further, who freely strut about when what is vile is honored by the human race. Who freely strut about when what is vile is honored by the human race. Um, Pastor Spurgeon um, Charles Spurgeon talks about this verse in this way, and it's a little bit unique. He says this. He's talking about this text in particular. And I must have gone, there you go. A return to the fount of bitterness, which first made the psalmist run to the wells of salvation. Spurgeon, talking about verse 7 and 8, he says, it's a return to the fount of bitterness, which first made the psalmist run to the wells of salvation. And what he means is, that the psalm doesn't end the way you think it should. When we think a song of praise, when we think of the psalm as a song of praise, it doesn't kind of bring closure to the psalm in a way you hoped it would. Let me explain. Imagine you're uh, reading a book or watching a movie, and you get to this climactic battle scene at the end. Uh, imagine Lord of the Rings, the two towers, this iconic battle. More recent, think of Avengers Endgame, and you have this final battle. A little more classic movie, think of the movie Goonies, where you have this final battle, right? And what happens? It feels like the heroes or heroes are about to be defeated, but then another group of heroes show up, and they save the day, and there's redemption, right? There's this kind of this great victory. Now, imagine that same kind of movie scene or a book scene you think about but these other group of heroes never arrive. They never show up. That's the same feeling you feel in verses 7 and 8. And that's how Psalm 12 leaves us. And that's what Spurgeon calls this fount of bitterness. The battle continues with the evils of the wicked still being championed and even celebrated in the world. Do you feel that? See, David's still amongst the injustice that's upon him. He's still fleeing from Saul and these other enemies who are trying to take his life. For us, the battle with sin in our hearts still exists today. See, we still face the oppression and darkness of this world. And sometimes it does overwhelm us. But something has shifted in David at the end. And what it is is his perspective on the situation. His plea turns to a God who will keep him safe for all of eternity. Through the word, his eyes have shifted toward the everlasting plan, a place of refuge for those who belong to the Lord. And though he may not see it in his lifetime, he knows it will play out in the eternal. See, David would never outrun his troubles. Even in this situation, David never really truly outruns his troubles in the long term. First, there's Saul who pursues him. Then there's his situation with Bathsheba. 
And then even near the end of his life with Absalom, his son, he never outruns his troubles, but his hope was in the promise of God whose words would never fail him no matter the circumstances or situations he would face. Friends, for you and I, we get to see the promise fulfilled. See, David was hoping in promise for the future, but we get to look back and see the promise fulfilled in Jesus. The scriptures are clear that there will be trouble in this life for those who belong to Jesus. There will be struggle. There will be battle. There will be losses. There will be days it feels like the darkness is overwhelming. There will be nights that we feel like the morning never comes. And maybe you're in one of those moments right now. Are you just tired? Frustrated? Do you feel like you're just limping into church today? That you feel like there's nothing else that can get you through, but you finally made it today just hoping for a glimmer of hope. And as, as much as I want to tell you, everything's going to be okay. Things will work out. Things will turn around. The greater promise, Jesus says, is that he will enter in with you in the situation. He will sit with you. He promises through Scripture, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Our eyes are lifted from what we see now to the eternal plan that God has for us, that one day all things will be made right, that there will be no more tears, and all this will be the way it was supposed to be. Jesus will turn the page of your story. I promise you this. It may not feel like it, but that page, that chapter of life will turn. But it may be in when Jesus redeems all things. But in the meantime, have hope. Hope not things will get better in the way you hope it will be. Hope in Jesus that he will be with you. Hope in him who sits with you in the waiting in the meantime. Let's pray. Holy God, we come to you. Father, that we know we are broken vessels, that we are sinners, and the only thing saving us is your grace. Lord, through it all, may we come to glorify you. Lord, let our praise lift, lift, be lifted to you. Sing of your name. Lord, as much as we want to lift our works, our words, our deeds, the things that we've accomplished, Lord, let it all fade away in light of your glory. and the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, who came to live the life we could not live and died to death we so deserve so that we could be called righteous, we could be called son and daughter of the most holy God. Lord, not by what we do, but only what you have given us. We pray this in your name. Amen.